Ah, well, you are a pleasant surprise on this dreary evening. Come in before you catch your death. I'm almost certain you won't catch it in here. Almost. <laughs> we don't tend to get many visitors on this night. What? What do you mean, what night is it? It's Friday the 13th. Always our quietest night of the year, due to that damn funk story. You haven't heard of it? <laughs> well, that explains why you're here then. Anyone with a sane mind would give this place a wide berth tonight. The place is empty tonight, apart from you and I. At least, it should be. Go on, take a seat. Now, the reason folks don't come here on a night like this is because supposedly this inn was built on the ruins of an old witch's house. There's nothing to support this, but the damn rumors just won't die. Supposedly, this witch used to keep out of her way, minding her own business as much as she could. Still, it didn't stop a couple of young men seeing her naked in the woodland, covered in blood, a dead goat at her feet. Of course, these boys ran back to town and told their parents. The town rented up a group to come see the woods and find her. And find her they did. They hauled her down to the river not too far from here, and they forced her in. You see, if a witch sinks, she's innocent. But if she floats, <laughs> well then she's guilty. Supposedly the old witch sank, cackling the whole time, staring up at her murderers with a maddening smile, even after her death. And after that, on Friday the 13th, wet, muddy footprints can be found around the inn, supposedly tracking the route she took to the river that day. Now, I can't attest to seeing it myself, but I've known of guests who dared stay and complain in the morning of damp and muddy footprints in their rooms, leading to the door. By the time I go and see it, they're gone. Still, strange things happen around here. Maybe one day I'll see them myself. I remember one guest who stayed on this night a few years ago. Just a businessman staying out of town, looking for somewhere cheap for the night. We only had one other guest. And with how quiet it was, it was a godsend that he came in. The thing was, he couldn't get to sleep. A couple hours in, he came down and told me that he was adamant about someone watching him in his room. He even had his bag packed and demanded a refund. Would you believe it? Anyway, I talked him into staying for the night and he eventually settled down and went back upstairs. He didn't last long though. He came running down the stairs wailing, screaming like a madman. Didn't even ask for his refund. <laughs> the other guest checked out as normal. A skinny young woman. Nothing special about her. I should have charged her extra looking back on it. I checked over the rooms and noticed something in the wall. Looks like she drilled a hole in the wall and left her little hand drill behind. Whatever she was hoping to peep on, I can't tell you. Has anyone ever heard of honeymoon videos? <laughs> I didn't even know what they were until the summer of 2017. My friend Vic called me up and asked if I wanted to make some money working on low-budget movies. I was trying to save up enough to go back to school and complete my half-finished video production degree. Short version? I was struggling. Seriously. Administrative work, freelance bookkeeping, bartending, <laughs> I did anything. 
So when Vic floated an absurdly large number in exchange for help, in the thousands, I bit. What kind? Local business commercials? Film student semester projects or something? Nah, dude. Porn. Ever heard of honeymoon videos? Nope. It's easy. We get a hotel room, bug another room with cameras, and we wait for people to fuck. I waited. Just to be a dick. Silence filled the line. Then, pointedly emphasizing each sentence, Vic droned. Then, we film them fucking. Then, we sell the film of them fucking to a guy I know. Then, we get money. Vic, that's a fucking crime. Only if you get caught. I didn't say anything. Come on, man. Last week you were begging me for work. I know your situation. You just need some cash to get it all started. I said no. It seemed risky, stupid, and morally reprehensible at best. But I'd known Vic for over a decade, and even the grip of puberty, I'd never known him to be reckless. Even when he was slinging weed in high school, he was careful. Recommendations only. Never did business in or near his house. An asshole, sure, but a cautious asshole. He wore me down over the next couple of days, trying to address all my concerns. He worked at the downtown Marriott and already had things ready to go. He had a guy quit without notice and he needed a fast replacement. He'd done it before and knew how to avoid getting caught. He only worked with people he trusted. The videos were only sold to a handful of strictly vetted private buyers. Voyeurs went wild for this shit and they paid through the nose for the genuine stuff. The only downside was that it was time consuming. He really just needed somebody to watch the cameras full time in case something went wrong. It was easy money. And I wanted to go back to school and have a real career. I didn't want to spend my life jumping from job to job with no stability, security, or health insurance. I just need some cash to get it all started. So that's how, in the winter of 2017, I found myself in a room in a depressingly near-empty hotel, staring at a bunch of monitors. By this time, I had done a couple other sessions with Vic and his people. But this time, this couple, well, it would be my last. In the hundred odd hours I'd clock spying on people, I'd seen a weird thing or two, but these two in particular made me uneasy. For one, there was a pretty startling age difference. The girl, petite and dark haired, looked really, really young, while the guy looked like he could have been in his 40s or 50s. In plain black pants and a collared shirt, he wasn't flashy or attractive enough to make me think he had a trophy wife money but he did look like he could afford to dabble with sex workers. And our city was a notorious hub for sex trafficking. There was also the fact that they weren't really acting like a couple. The girl trailed behind the guy as they entered the room, arms crossed, hugging her coat to herself. I texted Vic. What the fuck, man? Are you positive this isn't a father-daughter? A few seconds later, my phone buzzed. I mean, I don't know that many daughters that kiss their fathers on the mouth. Mouth twisting down into a grimace, I returned the surveillance. She just seemed so small and frail, like a little bird. I sat with my eyes glued to the monitor. I'll admit that the previous times, part of me enjoyed watching. But that night, I had a bad taste in my mouth. I watched them get settled. And for over an hour, they didn't do anything. 
She curled up in an armchair and played on her phone. He went into the bathroom, presumably to shower. He came back out in a bathrobe. She moved to the bed and turned on the TV. I got bored and did the same. I was startled out of my blue light revere by a thump from the next door. I scrambled off the bed to check the feed. The guy was on the carpet scrambling away from the girl, his robe spotted with blood. He held up one shaking hand as if he was pleading. I noticed that the hand was missing some fingers. The royal thin girl was stalking him slowly, her hands and face scarlet. What the fuck, I whispered to myself, unable to tear my eyes away. I let out a half shriek and clapped my hands over my mouth when the girl streaked towards him like a bullet. He tried to scream. I even heard the muffled cry through the wall, but she tackled him to the ground, straddled him and jammed her fist into his mouth. The scream turned to gurgling and he rolled onto his belly, howling and spewing blood all over the carpet. She brought something to her mouth. My stomach lurched when it registered. She was eating his tongue. She buried her face in his throat, and through the grainy image I saw dark, thick liquid spraying to the surrounding carpet. Her face moved up and down against his. Small red squirts bubbled up and splashed against her cheeks. A dark pool started to spread underneath the man. He flailed and grabbed, but wounded and positioned on his belly like that, he wasn't much use against her. She kept one hand on the crown of his head, pushing his face into the carpet, muting his wails. Almost methodically, she continued to gnaw on his neck. And I continued to watch, completely frozen in shock. I realized that I was clutching my face, a la Edwin Munch's the scream. Quiet overtook the room. The soft, insulated kind of silence that you would normally only hear in a doctor's office or a tenantless building. Corporate silence. My phone sat on the table, maddening in its implication. I stared around the room helplessly, wishing somebody was there with me, if for no other reason to corroborate what I was seeing. The silence was broken by a crack, then a sickening squelch as the girl pulled the man's head free from his neck. Tissue hung down his rag stump like Macrobie party decorations. The girl fell back to sitting and held her prize up in the air, letting the blood patter down her face. Her expression became serene, like she was enjoying a springtime rain. Her tongue darted out and licked away some of the scarlet. Then my phone buzzed. It was Vic. LOL, what's going on up there? Two noise complaints already. Damn. I stared at the phone for a full minute, completely at loss for what to do. Then I picked it up and typed as fast as I could. Call the police, do not go into the room. Finally, motivated to move, I got up and grabbed my bag and got the hell out of there. But when I saw movement on the computer screen, I stopped. The camera feed showed the girl had moved away from the body. She walked up to the opposite wall the one my room shared with hers. She turned her head to stare directly into the camera. Lifting a bloody fist, she knocked softly. Needless to say, I didn't stay in that room. I didn't break down the computers or do anything with the recordings or tell Vic where I was going. I just grabbed my shit and got the fuck out of that hotel. I went home and packed. Anything that didn't fit in my Mazda got left behind. I drove for two days, sleeping in my car until I got to my hometown. My parents were surprised to see me, 
but they accepted my pathetic story about a bad breakup leading me to up and leave. It's been okay here, so far. Like my old life, I picked up a couple part-time gigs that kept me afloat. I was going to look for full-time work until last week. Now, I don't know if there's any point. After my Friday night dishwashing shift was over, I went to get my free shift beer and sit at the bar for a while. I thought I'd relax for a minute before going home. Nope. When I came out, there was a familiar figure sitting alone at the table in the corner. Petite, dark hair. When she saw me staring at her, my mouth hanging open, she smiled and raised a delicate hand to knock on the wall. sworn that no one else was booked in tonight. Say, you wouldn't mind coming upstairs with me, would you? I'm just gonna check in over the other rooms. Perhaps I can tell you some more about the supposed witch if you want. Supposedly, when the witch was tried, other crimes came to surface. Have you ever noticed the apple tree out back? It's hard to see when it's this dark, but trust me, it's there. You'd think that with the apple tree out there, I'd be offering up some to my customers, but I rarely do. Only the ones I find distasteful. Oh, don't pull that face. I'd never offer you one. You don't have to worry about that. Now, apparently, people from the nearby villages would go missing every now and then. A husband, a child. There was no rhyme or reason to it. They simply vanished never to be seen again and with no traces of where they went. From what the accuser said, that wasn't always so true. Sure, they disappeared, but some of those investigating the alleged witchcraft had uncovered where they actually went. You've probably already guessed, but the witch had taken them. I doubt it was by brute force. I imagine she bewitched them somehow. The witch had used them for her magic, taking what she needed but disposing of what was left of them. And where did she dispose of them? <laughs> you guessed it. The apple tree wasn't there at the time, from what the stories say, but it was just a pit of cheered earth with all the bodies resting below the surface. Of course, this made the ground quite fertile. So when a little apple seed found its way into the earth, it grew quickly and strongly. Now, I'm not saying that the story is true, but those apples sure are ripe and round when they come into season. Sometimes, I give a complimentary apple to those guests that dare complain. It always gives me a little smile to see them chewing on them. I suppose, if it is true, that it's almost sweet that something so beautiful can come from such a dark act, don't you think? My 18-year-old stepdaughter, Patricia, had been missing for a full 12 weeks. I was not alarmed at all. In fact, I was glad that she was gone. She had been an absolute terror. And that's what I would call her on a good day. She never listened to me. In fact, she had always seemed to go out of her way to completely disregard anything that I asked of her. My pleas for her to clean her room would fall on deaf ears. If anything, she would make an even greater mess. In her room, in the kitchen, 
even in our master bedroom. I had lost count of how many times I had come into the master bedroom to see her rooting through my closet like a hog after a truffle. When I told her she needed to leave my things alone, she'd fix me with an evil smirk. It was only later I would find my clothes torn or with cigarette burns. I even found cat feces ground into my shoes or stuffed into my coat pockets. She was even terrible to my daughter, only two years old, but nevertheless, she was not immune to her half-sister's cruelty. I had been 38 when I gave birth to her, my little Eloise. Since I was an older mother, I knew she would probably be my one and only. I was afraid that I would never get to be a mother. So when I saw the positive pregnancy test, I was elated. When I had announced my pregnancy, my husband Adam had been overjoyed. But Patricia had screamed and demanded that I get an abortion. After Eloise was born, I would catch Patricia spitting in the baby's face or pinching her till she cried. The only person Patricia had any love for was her father. She was the epitome of a daddy's girl. He was also the only person who could successfully discipline her. Even then, she would scream and slam doors when she was grounded. When I started dating Adam, he had been a widower for four years and protective of his only child. And Patricia, likewise, was protective of her father. In the six years since I had met the man who would be my husband, she had made my life hell. I tried everything I could to get her to like me. I took her shopping, spending what would amount to thousands of dollars on toys, and then on makeup and clothes as she got older. I took her to the zoo, to the mall, to concerts, anything she wanted, anything at all to get her to accept me. Nothing I had done would sway her deep-seated hatred of me. As she got older, it had only gotten worse. Now she had boyfriends. We caught her having sex in our bed on half a dozen occasions. No amount of punishment would make her stop or feel guilt over what she had done. Always, she would fix me with that same arrogant smirk every time we came home and caught her. But I had endured. After all, I did love Adam. My husband had been absolutely distraught for the first two weeks since Patricia vanished. We had contacted the police, her friends, her many current and ex-boyfriends, but no one knew where she was. A sloppily written note that was barely readable had been left by her bed. It was said she was leaving and not to worry about her as she was going to Los Angeles to be an actress. Some of her clothes were gone and her small piggy bank had been emptied. The police were certain she was a runaway. Since she was 18, she was a legal adult, and if she wanted to run off to pursue her dreams in Hollywood, it was her own business. Once her money ran out, she would come back with her tail between her legs, the cops assured us. After the second week, my husband had gone back to work, but he called every day from his office, asking if there had been any news of his eldest child. I would sadly tell him that I hadn't gotten any calls. I was thankful that he had gone back to work. 
He seemed like he was getting back to his old self as well. He was playing with Eloise and being extra attentive to both of us. And I could go back to being a housewife and focus on raising Eloise. I was sitting in the backyard on the patio, sipping some tea with cookies I had carefully arranged on a napkin. It was such a sunny and happy day. Our house was lovely, too. It was out in the country, with our nearest neighbor a mile away. We had wanted a home with plenty of room for Eloise to run around. Later, I might take Eloise to the park in town to play on the playground. And tonight, I was thinking of grilling out some steaks. My daughter came up to me then, tugging on my pant leg as she was happily giggling and holding something out to me. What's this, sweetie? Did you pick some flowers for mommy? I asked, smiling at her beautiful face. The toddler held the thing out for me, and I gingerly took it. As soon as I saw what it was, I scowled. It was a finger. To be precise, it was the middle finger of my former stepdaughter. The nails painted a bright neon blue that stood out against the decaying flesh. I recognized her middle finger from the many times she had flipped me off the past few years. She had been using it while she walked away from me in this very garden. Patricia had never even seen the axe before it buried herself into the back of her skull. I forced a smile and patted my daughter on the head. That's really nice, sweetie. You found something really pretty. My toddler ambled off, and I wrapped the putrescent digit in the napkin, dumping the cookies on the ground. I eyed the flower bed, where I had buried part of my stepdaughter. I had dismembered the body twelve weeks earlier. I thought that it would be easier to bury her that way. I had been right, too. There were parts of her scattered all over my garden. Some parts were even buried out front, under my pear tree. I had slacked a little bit with burying her fingers. I had been tired, you see. Dismembering her had taken longer than I thought. I had just thrown some dirt over them in the rose garden, and hoped it had been enough. I was now paying for my laziness. I finished my tea and sighed walking to the shed and retrieving my trusty garden shovel. This time, I would make sure to bury her deep. Footsteps? Downstairs now? Ah, well, it looks like we've covered all the rooms up here. Let's say we go back to the bar and relax, shall we? I'll tell you about an odd fellow I had stayed the last time such a night rolled around. It was a booking made for two people, a Thomas and a Clarence. Thomas came in and made the booking, and I asked him when Clarence would be arriving. He told me he would be along later. I asked him if he wanted a key to give to him, and he refused. I remember at the time that it was odd. The evening rolled by, and Clarence never came. It was getting late, so the place was rather quiet, and most of our guests were enjoying their sleep. We've had no shows happen before, so I thought nothing of it. 
Later that night, I was woken by the most thundering argument. It came from Thomas's room. I could hear two distinctively different voices shouting at each other. Somehow, the other guests were undisturbed, but I crept to the room to investigate. By the time I had arrived, things had taken a sour turn. From the other side of the door, I heard a struggle, with furniture being knocked and walls being banged against. I tried the door, but I found it locked. Just as I turned away to retrieve my own key for the room, the noises stopped and the door opened. There stood Thomas, his face bruised and battered. I asked him if he was okay and who the other person in the room was. I asked if it was Clarence. He laughed and told me that he was Clarence and that Thomas was gone and he'd be gone for a long, considerable amount of time. In the morning, he came down as if nothing had ever happened. I checked to see how he signed the key back in and saw that he'd written Clarence next to Thomas in the exact same handwriting. Until last week, I thought my schizophrenia was hereditary. I was having one of those days where I have to stay indoors. I'd been stressed at work lately, and as a result, I was having a particularly bad bout of paranoia, and my auditory hallucinations were stronger than usual. I tried tuning them out with music, but Sammy, the voice in my head, wouldn't leave me alone. You know, they're watching you, he said. Shut up, Sammy. I'm not listening. Of course you are. I'm inside your head, remember? Besides, I'm only trying to warn you. They'll be coming to get you soon. You've been saying that for five years, I said trying to shut down the mounting paranoia, that this time he could be right. And I've been right for five years. I am thousands of years old, John. Five years is soon to me. My heart rate started to increase. I opened the fridge to get a beer, thinking it would help to calm me down. You know you're not supposed to drink those, Sammy said. They interfere with your medication. I know, Sammy, I said. I cracked open the can of Lagunitas and drained half of it in a gulp. I calmed down a little as the pleasant buzz began to cloud my thoughts. I'll tell Dr. Barksdale. Ha, <laughs> that'd be a trick, I said, emboldened by the alcohol. Go ahead and tell him. As a matter of fact, why don't you go and bother somebody else for a while? I'm sick of you. You're gonna miss me. No, I'm not. I waited for Sammy's snappy reply, but it didn't come. Instead, there was only silence. Dr. Boxdale would be upset if he knew I was talking to Sammy again, but it was the most reliable way I had of getting rid of him without the harsh side effects of increasing my dose of Risperdal. I told myself it wasn't necessary, but I knew I had to do it anyway. I went around my living room and shut the blinds, just in case they were watching. I chided myself for being irrational and flopped down on the couch, ready to kill an afternoon drinking beer and watching cartoons. I was five minutes into adventure time when my phone rang. The caller ID told me it was Dr. Barksdale's office. Not wanting the good doctor to know I'd been drinking, I let it go to voicemail. But then, the phone rang again. I sighed and picked it up. Hello? I said. John? came Dr. Barksdale's voice. He sounded tense. Hey, Dr. B, I said. Is everything okay? Have you been hearing voices again, John? 
Dr. Barksdale said. Just a little bit, Doctor. It's nothing I can't handle. You haven't been talking with them again, have you? How did he know that? I started feeling paranoid, but Sammy didn't say anything. Sorry, uh, Doc. I know I'm not supposed to, but it helps. No, no, it's fine, said Dr. Barksdale. Do you remember the last thing you said to Sammy? Please concentrate. It's very important. Why do you want to know that? Um, he said he was going to tell you that I had been... Drinking? Yeah. He must have heard it in my voice. Was I slurring? So, I said. I told him to go and bother somebody else for a while instead. The line went silent. Doc? I don't know what's going on, said Dr. Barksdale. His voice was thin and strained. Logically, I know it must be some sort of shared psychosis, but... But what, Doc? Sammy spoke to me. My stomach dropped. He had to be joking, right? He did, I said. Yes, I don't understand what's happening, but he told me to tell you that... My hands began to sweat. What, Doc? I, uh, never mind, he said. I must not be feeling well. Okay, Doc, I said. I wasn't convinced. I held my phone out with my finger above the hang-up button when I heard Sammy's voice on the other end. I told him to tell you that they're coming for you, he said. Right now. The line clicked dead, and my doorbell rang. Here, for your assistance and patrons tonight. If I'm being honest, it's nice just to have another person here on such a night. Those footsteps, I'm sure it was just the old wood of the floor expanding and attracting. It happens all the time in the winter with the heating system. Still, it can be pretty convincing sometimes. My, is that the time already? It's getting rather late, and I know it's a long walk back to town for you. Here, let me get your coat for you. I believe you left it on the hook by the entrance. Say, I don't suppose you noticed those footsteps when you came back in. It's the footsteps, isn't it? As in the footsteps? All muddy and wet? Barefoot too, by the looks of it. Finally, after all these years, I've seen them. The odd thing is, they're not coming in, but going out. That certainly suits me, but for anyone walking out there at this time of night, Maybe not so much. Are you feeling okay? You've suddenly gone a little pale. If you set off now, you should be able to make it back home before the witching hour. <laughs> Take a steady walk home now. It's a wicked night, and who knows what's out there in the dark. And now it's announcement time. Before you leave, 
I'd like to take a moment and thank the people who provided their voices to read these horror tales, along with everyone else who's been involved with bringing these horrific tales to life, here at the Cursed Inn. If you're a writer and think your story is sinister enough to be featured on a podcast, or if you'd like to volunteer as a voice actor, send us a demo to thecursedin at gmail.com. We're always looking for new stories and talents to scare our guests. And please, don't forget to check out our pages on Facebook and Twitter for updates. We'll see you very, very soon.